Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hello and welcome to The Hedgehog and the Fox, episode 59. This week, I'm talking to Dutch psychologist Stefan van der Stichel about concentration, which he defines as the action of maintaining one's attention on a particular task for a certain period of time without becoming distracted. That's an activity that's become a whole lot harder in the past three months. Stefan's recent book for MIT Press is called Concentration, Staying Focused in Times of Distraction, though I doubt Stefan could have guessed when he wrote it just how distracting our times could become. Read his book and you'll have a much better understanding of how concentration works and why it's hard to maintain it. You'll also be aware that there are no quick fixes, no magic recipes for enhancing your concentration, but there are, as you'll hear, practical and effective things you can do to improve it. And along the way, Stefan busts some persistent myths about concentration. In our conversation, we touched on whether music helps concentration or hinders it, how to increase the chances an audience will listen to you, and the function of daydreaming, and why it doesn't necessarily make us happier. But when I spoke to Stefan in mid-April, with the Netherlands already one month in to lockdown measures, I wanted to know first how he was coping with life in this new reality. Well, the first thing I... It took me a couple of days to realise, but I at least realised that I shouldn't put the bar too high. So if there are days in which I cannot focus, in which there's very little concentration, don't worry about it. Like, these are crazy times, and concentration is very difficult. So we have to be aware that these are not the times to be worried about your concentration too much. This is a general lesson. I think that's very helpful if you think about concentration because it's, it's, it's like you can create your environment to allow concentration to its full capacity, but sometimes it simply doesn't happen. And it's fine. Like if you become stressed, that's not a period to go for a long period of concentration. So it's just like creativity. You can arrange your world, your environment in such a way to allow for perfect concentration to appear. But if it doesn't happen, it's fine. And that, for me at least, has very much helped in not being able to force myself to concentrate. Knowing the lessons about concentration is helpful in understanding that, hey, sometimes it's it's okay, it's fine. These are crazy times. Your mind is full of other things. And especially if you do work that's perhaps not the most relevant at this uh, particular moment in time, don't worry, try it another day. Try, go outside, take a walk if you're allowed to. Uh, read a good book, uh, clear your mind. 
And uh, if you can do that, if you're relaxed, if your mind is empty, then perhaps that's the moment to start a period of concentration. Because as society started going into lockdown, I kept seeing on Twitter people saying, now's your chance to write the novel or to learn a new language or to learn a new skill. And I thought that's really unrealistic and doesn't, doesn't take any account of the fact that what's going on in the outside world is really sort of pressing in and it's very, it's very hard to, um, to shut it out, isn't it? It's a sort of ultimate distraction. It's an ultimate distraction. And if you're worried then we know that if, if, if you do an experiment in which you require observers and participants to concentrate for a period of time, if you make them worried, concentration is almost impossible. If you've got stuff in your mind, then it's very difficult to focus because the brain can only do one thing at a time that requires concentration and attention. If you're worried about something, that that's gonna, your mind's going to be full of that worry. There are many things you can do about it, of course. Like you can try to unload that worry on paper, write about it, put your worries on paper, uh, try to get it out of your head, almost literally. <laughs> so write it on paper, put it in an external memory so that it's no longer in your internal memory. And perhaps that's helpful. Uh, do relaxation theory, uh, therapies, uh, meditation, all the type of tricks you can use, put on some relaxing music. Uh, but I totally agree. Like I, So I supervise a lot of students and they always tell me at the end of their thesis period, what I'm going to do is I know this little house in the north of the Netherlands, which is very quiet, and I'm going to sit there for five days, and the only thing I'm going to do is write. And in five days, I'm going to write my complete thesis. That's always a disappointment. It's very impossible to focus for more than five to six hours at a day. So the idea that in isolation, you can be as most productive as you've ever been, that's quite an illusion. Like you also need energy, right? You need inspiration. And if you sit behind your desk waiting for this, inside to appear most of the times it doesn't happen and, and it doesn't appear so you have to feel inspired and these days are extremely difficult to feel inspiration uh, and i hear that from a lot of people and i i notice it myself as well as i was reading the book i was thinking when data that is coming in has a really strong kind of emotional charge that really amplifies the effect doesn't it so it's not just a lot of of facts new information that people are trying to process is something that has got such potential Im impact on, on them, on their livelihood, on their loved ones, on the future, on the economy. There are so many aspects that it's, that, you know, you can be perpetually turning those things over and it's very, very hard to, I'm finding, you know, even to screen it out for a couple of hours and, uh, and not think about it. Yeah, it, it comes, it comes re really close. Like everybody think, thinks about their loved ones Everyone knows perhaps a person who's currently in a difficult situation. You're worried perhaps about your own business, what it means for the price of your house, what it means for your own job. There are so many unknowns in this period that it's almost impossible not to, fee to feel personally engaged and to feel some worry and perhaps also a little bit of fear. And we know that yeah, fear is, of course, one of the things that, 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 that fills your mind almost completely. So it's very, it's very easy to have a sort of sense of information overload, isn't it? And yeah. I thought that was, that was really interesting in relation to what you were saying about the working memory. So that this functioning of the working memory is a really important concept, a really important um, function, I think, for people to grasp when they're trying to come to terms with concentration. So could you say a little bit about how the working memory operates and why it's so important? So working memory is the part of your brain that's responsible for executing actions that don't happen automatically. So a lot of motoric actions, they go automatically. So biking, brushing your teeth, walking, 
all of these things, especially if, you, if you've done them for quite some time, these things go automatically and don't tax your working memory. But all the other things actually do, all cognitive things require working memory. So talking, uh, listening, uh, writing, typing, all these things that you need to think about and don't go automatically, per definition, tax your working memory. But the problem with the working memory is that it only can execute one of those things at the same time. There's only one task in your working memory. So when you have the idea that you're doing multiple things at the same time, you're not actually doing them at the same time, but you're doing them serially. So one by one. And that's a problem because it takes more time. You never get into a full focus because you're constantly switching between these two tasks. You start to make more errors. You start to feel stressed because that constantly switching is, is effortful. And the other problem with working memory is that it's very easy to lose the content of your working memory. So everyone, I think, knows the situation in which you're in your house, you are reminded to pick up something in the other room, and the moment you enter the other room, you have no idea what you're doing there. And you completely forgot about your task. And when you're reading or you're writing and somebody starts talking to you, this automatically results in a situation in which your task is gone. And it will then take a lot of time before you get back to that previous tasks. And I think everyone who sits, who sits in an open office space can relate to this. That you're trying to work, somebody starts talking to you. Even if it's not to you, even this person starts talking on the phone, you immediately, the task that you have in your working memory is gone. So it's a very fragile system. It can only do one thing at a time and it's responsible for all the important actions. So it's a great system, but it's also flexible and we need to create a situation in which you are able to have a task in your working memory for a longer period of time without distraction. And that's very difficult in these times with all these notifications, people around you while you're working, uh, all these incoming emails that have a message. And a lot of these notifications might be important. A lot of the distractions in the world might be important, but a lot of them are completely irrelevant and the brain cannot disentangle between irrelevant and relevant distractors. So your attention is captured, your task is out of your working memory, and it will take some time for that original tasks to be executed again. And some of the information which is coming at us might be, you know, sort of pure data, as it were, with no sort of emotional content. But a lot of the time we get distracted because we are seeking some sort of reward or some kind of gratification, aren't we? So it, you could say we're our own worst enemies because we're very receptive to, you know, to the, yeah. the the thing that pings up on the screen, the things which allows us to to depart from the task that we were trying to concentrate on. But we, as it were, we welcome the distraction a lot of the time. Absolutely. Concentration is very difficult. And we are, as you said, the brain is constantly seeking for new information. So when there's an incoming message, you almost get a mental itch. Like you, you're very interested in what's the information? What's this message? And I think everybody, everybody experiences this all the time. You, you feel your phone buzzing. And within seconds, perhaps you pick up your phone. And we see this in experiments as well. You give someone a difficult task and you then inform them that they have a new message. And you can just see accuracy drop. Even if they know you have a message already taxes your working memory in such a way that your performance simply goes down. If I'm in my car and I really are prepared not to pick up my phone because I'm in a car and I hear my phone buzzing, the moment I stop at a traffic light, I will get it. Meaning that part of my brain is really thinking about 
hey, who is this? And it could be an irrelevant cat movie, but it could also be a message from your mom or from your dad, like you have no idea. And especially if you have a lot of your notifications on, this could be anything. Uh, and I think one of the easy tricks to restore your concentration is to think about your environment, think about the notifications. Are they really necessary? Invest some time in like getting rid of the vast majority of your notifications because like it's almost impossible not to pick up your phone where you know you have a concentration, uh, where you know you got a notification. Like there's nothing you can do about that, right? That's, that's simply how the brain works. So don't allow this situation to occur. Yeah. So I I tried that quite a, you know, probably a couple of years ago, turning off email notifications when I'm at my desk. So I don't get a pop up saying you've got a new email. And I set yeah. I set the, the fetch to only fetch every hour. But then what I found was <laughs> five minutes will go by, eight minutes will go by. I think, oh, I'll just check. I'll just I'll just refresh and see. So that the impulse to seek new information is very strong, isn't it? I mean, I, I think I agree entirely with you saying, you know, turn the notifications off. But that there's still that impetus to scratch the itch, even when you've suppressed the yes. notifications. But still, I'm confident that if you're writing a great piece of work, if you are in full flow, you're not thinking about your email. So this happens in situations in which concentration is not crucial. Because what I don't want people to get from this is that you need eight hours of concentration during your day. What I would really like everyone to think about how long during a day are you really concentrated? And if this is one hour of two hours, yes, that can be more. I think you can do better. But on the other end, don't feel bad if you're not focused six to eight hours. So what I would really think is a problem is when you're in your flow, when everything's going great and you're only thinking about the task that you're currently doing and then you get a notification, that's horrible. So if you're just working and you get a message and hey, you're filing some, some files, don't worry about it. But uh, And if it's an internal distraction, those are less problematic than external because the external might happen in a situation in which you are fully focused. And then it's extremely difficult to go back to that full focus again, because then you, hey, then you go get some coffee, you take a walk, and then you take this notification as some sort of reason to take a longer break. And because concentration is so difficult, if you are in a period of full concentration, you should really treasure that. I thought it was really interesting what you said about our response to distraction having an evolutionary value. So it's not simply mm -hmm. that it's a, it's a complete undesirable and we, you know, that, that humanity would have been better off ditching hundreds of thousands no. of years ago. <laughs> it's, actually, it's actually got a use. Absolutely. And people tell me, I don't want to be distracted all the time. And my first answer always is, yeah, you, yeah, you do. You want to be distracted. Like if you are in the external world and when there are kids crossing a street, when a traffic light suddenly changes color, those are the distractions that are necessary. So there's a system in the brain that whenever something happens in the physical world that's sudden onset or when there's something changing, you automatically are attracted to that piece of that information. This is, of course, of evolutionary great power. Like we're now sitting in our room, but if somebody enters my room, I might want to check out who that person is. It's probably one of my kids, but it can also be someone else that's not allowed in my room. So in evolutionary points of view, it's extremely relevant for your brain to pick up on sudden information, changing information, suddenly appearing onsets in your, in your environment. However, as I said, for the brain, it's, it doesn't know whether it's an intruder or whether it's an incoming Facebook message. Like it reacts to that information in the same way in that it automatically breaks into the working memory and the task that you're currently doing will be gone. 
And as we know, the people who design these apps that we become so addicted to are very well aware of how those addictions work. I mean, it's, it's not an accidental byproduct that we are constantly no. checking our messages. It's sort of baked in to the whole way, the whole sort of architecture of those apps, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, they, they know they know exactly what to do. And people always, I, I always find it a bit funny that people say, hey, when people that, those, those, that make those apps, they know exactly how the brain works. Well, this is first year psychology. Like it's not that... Like, it's not that difficult. It's not that they hack the brain in a way that we don't understand. If you think about the principles underlying social media, it's actually quite well known. Yeah. And, these, and this is not new knowledge. But as you said, definitely, they know exactly how to do this. But we also know how to do this, right? So we can tackle this. And the way I'm saying is, is that it's, I think it's positive to think about it in a term that we can actually counter this. Like they know how it works, but we also know. That's the reason why I write this book is I want to inform the people that it's it's not rocket science. There are just a number of principles. And if you know those principles, this will allow you to focus again, at least a bit better than before, if you have the knowledge about how the brain works. You said towards the end of the book, concentration is made to measure and individuals must find their own way. So how do individuals begin that journey of, is it a matter of trying to understand how you, how you concentrate best, the distractions that you are most susceptible to, and then try to, as it were, design out, you know, as you were saying, turn off the notifications. So design out some of those features in your environment. Yeah, I'm, I'm happy that you asked the question because that was actually one of the main reasons why I started writing is because I, I read all the books about concentration and they are extremely clear about sort of, they really instruct you like 25 minutes of concentration and then five minutes of break, 25 minutes of concentration again. And this is, of course, nonsense. Like you have, there's no scientific data to tell you that the maximum concentration span is 25 minutes. And even if it were, like these are averages. So you might have a different concentration span than I. So the only thing I can do is I can inform you about the principles of concentration. And then it's up to you. And as I said, the principles are not that difficult, but then getting it implemented in your life is perhaps more difficult. So there are many tricks you can use there. And I, I, I give some of those in my book is really to try to find out your own concentration span. So just measure the time and feel when you are no longer concentrated. So the moment you're reading and you feel that your eyes are still moving, but there's no longer information intake, that's a moment to realize that your concentration span is gone and that you simply have no concentration left and it's time to take a break. How long should that break take? I cannot tell you, like your perfect break can be longer than my break. And it depends on what you do during that break. So I really invite the listener to start investigating and to start understanding what, what it is to, to be concentrated and to feel when they no longer have, when their battery is empty and see whether they can take a break and, and the break should be in such a way that the battery is full again the moment they start concentrating. And while the principles are extremely easy, this is more difficult. But on the other hand, it varies day by day. So it depends on how well you slept. It depends on the tasks that you're doing. And try to realize what it means to have a good break and that you feel better after you've taken a break while you walked in a park compared to the situation in which you just looked at your Facebook timeline. Because taking a break or walking in a park is much more efficient than taking a break and doing something that still taxes your working memory, like looking at your mobile phone and interacting with social media. 
And when you're engaged in a task, I was interested you said that for some people, listening to music can actually be beneficial. And I can, I can see that, but I find it very difficult to work when I've got music on because I find myself getting too distracted by the music or else, you know, not paying any attention to the music. But there, are, there can be benefits for some people to working with music on. Yeah, so I always work with music on. So there are many individual differences here. But it's not that if you're listening to music that you're multitasking because what we're able to do is we're able to ignore the auditory information, especially when it's well-known music. There's no singing in the music, so it's all instrumental. It's perhaps a DJ set that runs for 45 minutes and there are no large breaks or there are no long, there's, there's no, there's no build-up or whatever. There, there are no huge drops. It's a constant stream of information. That's why Spotify, if you look at the list that are required for working, that those are long neoclassical music. And of course, that helps. Like it keeps you awake. It's more difficult to fall asleep when you've got music on than when there's no music on. So it keeps you awake. If you have a headphone on, it even allows you to create some wall of sound around you. And that if a person starts talking, you're not distracted automatically. So it can help you to create a wall that because we cannot close our ears. Like we can close our eyes, we can, but, we can, but we cannot close our ears. So music allows you to close your ears. But then don't listen to the new album of your favorite band yes. because that's going to tax your working memory because you could start listening automatically. Don't listen to a podcast that you actually want to <laughs> listen to because then yes. you're multitasking. So, of course, you could be on your bike and listening to this podcast, but you cannot focus on the text and listen to the podcast because biking goes automatically, at least in the Netherlands. And listen and, and reading and writing doesn't go automatically. So it very much depends on whether there's multitasking. But as I said, if pe some people are really interested in music and they cannot focus with music on. And even I, when things get really difficult, I don't have music on because apparently it still taxes some of my sort of inhibitory qualities to ignore the music. So when it becomes too difficult, I cannot work with music on. But in the vast majority, I have to get music on just to keep me awake and to give me some energy. Yeah. But you're not multitasking if you're listening to music that is well-known. So I can advise everyone, if they don't have it, if you've got a Spotify account, just work on an, uh, like a playlist of music that you can just start the moment you need concentration. And think about songs that are long, that you know very well that are relaxing or up-tempo, make you happy. And then if you invest that time, you always have a playlist to go back to when you need a long period of concentration. I've, I've recently started to li listening to um, underwater sounds on, on yeah. YouTube. So there's, there's very little happening, but it's kind yeah. of like a sonic background. And there's just a, there's a sort of bubbling. Maybe, maybe I was a whale in a previous life or something. Um, <laughs> but there's just enough happening for it not to be like, you know, static or white noise, um, but not so much happening that it attracts my attention. So it's, you know, it's like watching an aquarium, I guess. There's not much happening, but there's something happening. Um, yeah, and well, that seems to work for me. But. Yeah, there's a reason why these playlists and those, and those types of music are extremely popular these days. It's because a lot of people are working with people around them and they need this to create a wall of sound around them. Now, what about rituals, Stefan? Because you write about a number of artists in particular or scientists who have very strict rituals, you know, like getting themselves in the right frame of mind that this is, this is what they do before they concentrate and while they're concentrating. Is that something you think can work for, for a lot of people? Yeah, I think it can. Don't think that you can 
sit behind your desk and concentrate immediately. That's impossible. So there are always residual tasks that are still in your mind. You might have a heart rate that's still pretty high because you just walked in or you, you climbed the stairs or whatever. So for a full for concentration to happen, your mind needs to be empty. And this requires you to remove residual information from your working memory. One way to do that is to have an attention ritual. Just to do something that you do before you start to focus. And a lot of people might have one, but are not aware that this is actually an attention ritual. So I have quite some records. And before I begin a moment of long period of concentration, I do something with my records. I just, I pick one out or I put them in the right place or whatever, I just look at one of them. And this is something that almost happens automatically. I don't think about it. Uh, or I just, um, I put my clothes back into the closet or whatever, or I visit some websites without really paying a lot of attention. And if you look at what a lot of people do, as I said, a lot of well-known artists have these attention rituals. And this, that are things that go, that go automatically, that empty your mind, uh, that don't tax working memory. And when it empty your mind, then after a couple of time, you can actually start concentrating and your mind is empty. So... Think about what's my attention ritual. And if you don't have have one, you might create one. And I think a lot of people, when they think about it, yeah, um, I do something with the dishes. And if that doesn't take too long, then that's not a problem. And don't worry about it. It might actually be really effective. So again, don't be too hard on yourself. Don't think that you can start and immediately both be focused. So if you sit behind your desk, yeah, first look at your email. Why not? Just five to 10 minutes. If it calms you down, if you just know what's in your inbox, that's not a problem. This can be an attention ritual. If it's 10 minutes, don't worry about it because this might allow you to get a longer period of concentration afterwards. We've been talking mainly about what individuals can do you know for themselves and by themselves but you teach students in the Netherlands and classes there typically last 90 minutes so you've got to think about how you can retain someone else's attention and help them to concentrate to give of their best so what kind of things have you as as a teacher done in order to to engage and retain students attention? Yeah, so as, as you said, uh, two times 45 minutes in which the break, it's very difficult for them to leave because they only got 15 minutes and they need to be back in their seat after 15 minutes. So they generally stay. So it's difficult. And what I tend to do is I tend to switch tasks for them. So it's a little bit contradiction to what I just said, but let me explain. Because after a while, the concentration span with one particular task is over and you shouldn't be then going on with that same task. You need to switch to a different task. So when I notice that I'm losing a crowd and of course I might not lose everyone and I might lose a lot of them a lot earlier, but everyone who's been in front of a crowd knows, feels, if you experience that, yeah, I'm losing my crowd here. I always have have a backup plan and the crowd doesn't notice it, but I've got always movies backed up. I've got always quizzes backed up. So when I know that I'm losing, I can switch and I can do something else. And when I talk about something difficult, I always have the next slide, like a stupid joke or a stupid movie from YouTube or whatever, just to relax them in order order for them to do something else. So I try to be their task switcher. And the moment they start thinking about their phones, this is the moment that I should get them back. This could be asking a question, telling a personal story, speeding up my talking or slowing down my talking and I think like when you have a huge dinner and there's dessert and there's cheese (laughs) um, 
you mostly you're not hungry anymore, right? But, but, but because the cheeses all have a different taste, you keep on eating. If the cheeses would all be the same after one, you would say, yeah, I'm done. So you're always, yeah, there's another one and there's another one and there's another one. And this allows you to eat more than you originally planned. And what I hope is for those students that they listen more than they originally had planned. Uh, if I give them a if they give them a new task, it's the pedagogical cheese board. So you're so you're swi- yes. you're switching tempo, you're switching task, and it sounds like you're also trying to sometimes shift from the passive to the active. So they're not just sort of yeah. receiving, but they've got to you know engage, do a questionnaire, do something online. Yeah, and even I've I've had them sort of tell me to not use their phone for fifteen minutes. Because this is something that's going to be very difficult. And I said, okay, after 15 minutes, I'm going to give you a two-minute technology break. So this is in the 45 minutes, I gave them a two-minute break. And it was really nice because they know, okay, I don't have to watch my phone for 15 minutes. I can focus fully and then I'll be able to get that mental itch out of the way. And this is called a technology break. And it was actually it was actually quite effective. And I know other colleagues who, was, who, who have played around with that as well. So this is also a way of giving them something active and also giving them almost like a reward. Okay, 10 minutes. Give me 10 minutes of your full focus. This stuff is important. I know it's going to be a little bit dry, but after 10 minutes, you can watch your phone again. So there are many of these tricks that you can use, changing from active to passive. Uh, also, indeed, your, your presentation style, personal anecdotes, technology breaks. I think it's almost impossible for anyone to get 45 minutes in the same style, the same tempo, without losing the audience. Well, you quote in the book, Stefan, that um, one study found that the average amount of time that a student devotes to a learning task is six minutes. Now, that that kind of statistic leads to to headlines in the tabloids about you know attention crisis and you know civiliz- yeah. civilization is sliding off a, a cliff and i know that one of the things you want to do in the book is to sort of bust some of the myths that that surround the idea of concentration you know so where do you stand exactly on this question of whether you know attention spans are shrinking and shrinking and eventually we we won't be able to concentrate at all so there's absolutely no scientific evidence that our attention span has decreased in the last couple of years. The reason for that is there's no data. It's simply like it could be true, but I'm a scientist, so I should stick to the science. And there's no reference that tells me that our attention span has decreased. It could be, but I'm, I, I don't know. The only thing I do know is that there is more information than ever. And one thing I also know is that our brains haven't changed. So evolution is not that quick that suddenly we now have a generation that, is, that has a different brain than previous generations. So in potential, we could still focus just as well as 50, 60, 70, 80, 100, 200 years ago. However, because our environment has changed, it becomes more difficult. But of course, we can control the environment to an extent. And there's the solution. So it might be more difficult to focus, but our brains haven't changed. So if you allow yourself to concentrate, if you make your environment such that you still allow for longer period of concentrations, it's still possible. So I'm not so negative about all these headlines because I think we have the key. And that's why I think psychology is so great because yeah, we know how the brain works. We know how concentration works. Follow the principles and there's nothing wrong with your concentration span. Now, in contrast to the operations of the working memory, which we talked about earlier, where you're focusing, you're concentrating, you've got one task, you can switch tasks, but only one, is the phenomenon of daydreaming, which 
in human history, a lot of sort of creative potential has been ascribed to daydreaming as sort of the antithesis of the going head on at a problem. And a lot of us, I guess, believe that daydreaming is perhaps, you know, in the subconscious where we solve problems that we, we might find difficult to crack in, in, in our sort of conscious minds. But your, your book is quite a, a useful sort of corrective to that, that daydreaming isn't, <laughs> isn't this sort of magic chamber where, you know, where answers are miraculously produced. You have some quite interesting things to say that, that daydreaming, for example, in that sort of state, people report being less happy than when they are actually engaged yeah. even on a, on a difficult task. So daydreaming is very important. And yes, you can be creative doing daydreaming and daydreaming is important for reason also to allow better concentration after a period of daydreaming. So I'm positive about day, daydreaming, but it's it's not magic. So there are some claims in literature that indeed you solve complicated tasks during, during daydreaming, that there's sort of unconscious problem solving. No, if you know anything about the replication crisis in psychology, and I think a lot of people do, those things tend not to be replicated. So it's not that you've got a very smart unconscious that's perhaps more smarter than your conscience. No. But however, if you do a period of daydreaming, then if you get back to a task at hand, hey, you get, a fresh, you get a fresh look and you might come to a different solution than before. So if you're stuck in a problem, just go outside, take a walk and go back to the problem again. I think everybody can relate to this. And yes, you can get a creative insight during daydreaming. It doesn't have to be related to the problem that you're solving, but can be anything, can be anything. So you, yes, you can be creative in two stages, during full focus and during daydreaming. But a lot of the times we're actually in between. We're not fully focused and we're not daydreaming. We're just doing multitasking and we're watching a phone or whatever. And I think very few people have a good idea while they're watching their phone. But as you said, daydreaming is most of the time associated with now, worrying. And I think a lot of people can relate to the fact that when they are left alone, they, it's not only happy thoughts. And there's a science publication called A Wandering Mind is an Unhappy Mind in which they asked participants, what are you doing? They said daydreaming. And then they asked, are you happy? Nah, not so much. So a lot of the times we tend to get away from daydreaming because it might not be a very positive experience. And I think that's one of the reasons why people, if they're waiting for their train, they pick up their phone and they get their phone out of their bag and they just, yeah, they need some distraction from everything that's happening inside in their own mind. And what I tend to do in the last couple of years is just ignore my phone the moment I'm waiting and just see what's happening inside of my mind. If there are any worries, uh, the problems that I need to solve, uh, if there are any, any, any creative thoughts. So I can advise everyone to, if they're standing, if, they're, if the trains ever ride again, we're in the middle of the corona crisis. So if I'm ever on a train again, if you're waiting for the train, if you're a bus, then don't watch your phone, but simply see what's going on inside of your head. And there was this beautiful experiment in which they had college students inside a room with nothing. The only thing they would do is they get an apparatus to give themselves a shock. After 10 minutes, the vast majority of the participants have has given themselves shocks. So the idea is that we prefer giving ourselves shocks than doing nothing. And of course, it's a little bit of an overstatement. But <laughs> I think this is, this is the reason why so many people uh, watch their phones the moment they're doing nothing. But doing nothing can be, is important. And I can advise everyone to implement a bit more daydreaming in their daily life, even if it's a bit negative. And of course, if it's too negative, if you're really worried and if you're really depressed, seek help uh, and try to solve that problem. 
But yeah, reflecting on your life is important. And now I really sound like a psychologist. Sorry about that. <laughs> well, the, the, you say in the book, a lot of the um, the sort of subject matter of daydreaming is sort of speculation about your own you know, autobiographical future. And I guess yeah. at the moment it's tricky because so much of that yeah. is uncertain. So maybe daydreaming is especially dangerous activity at the moment. Yeah. So if it's really worrying, then it's not helpful and find some distraction or or, what, or whatever. But if if you feel right and if you have concentrated for a while, so don't worry about daydreaming. So I think I would give a more positive interpretation to daydreaming uh, because doing nothing, if it's in the right balance with concentration, might actually be very positive. Yeah. I mentioned that you wanted to bust some myths because there are a lot of myths about concentration and how our minds work, how we could focus. If there was one, you know, one top myth that you could that you could end, you know, you could get people to focus on, which one would that be? Yeah, so I think the most important, I think was the main drive for me to write this book is don't believe when self-help psychologists mention concrete numbers. So when they say that your IQ drops 15 points the moment you multitask, that's nonsense. That it takes 20 minutes for you to go back to your original tasks every t- every time you have an interruption. That's not true. That our concentration span is now lower than that of a goldfish, which is seven seconds. Like average, like you are not the mean. Like even if they have the data, which the most of the times they don't have, you might not be the average person. The average person might not exist like when you have an average, it's always an average of a lot of people and you might be somewhere on a continuum. So if you have the Pomodori technique where you have to like a, get a clock which takes 25 minutes, 25 minutes is extremely long when you're doing a long computation or it's extremely short when you're reading a great book. So 25 minutes is nonsense. So there are no concrete numbers in my book. And if you have someone in front of you that gives such a concrete number, ask this person, Where is this data coming from? Why are you telling me that a perfect break is 15 minutes? Why is the ultimate YouTube video six minutes? There's no data. Most of the time, it's an excuse for not to do your your best. Like you can still have a YouTube video that's 25 minutes or one hour. If it's made very well, you can still watch it for an hour. A beautiful Netflix series can, can still keep your attention span for hours and hours. So there's nothing wrong with our attention span. It's just you need to try harder perhaps than earlier, but it's still possible. Yeah. So if, if someone quotes a number, you say the words, Ask re- them. you say replication crisis and you walk away. Yes, please do. <laughs> please do. I was talking to Stefan van der Stichel about his recent book, Concentration, Staying Focused in Times of Distraction, which is published by the MIT Press. If you've enjoyed this interview, you'll find about 60 others in the series at thehedgehogandthefox.com. You can subscribe to the programme wherever you get your podcasts, catch up on any interviews you've missed, and leave a review. I'll be back again soon with another programme. So until then, thank you very much for listening, and goodbye.
Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.